0: Welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 262, part one of my conversation with percussion specialist, educator, performer, arranger, and composer, Patricia Islas. We'll get to her shortly. But first up, a big week for Marching Mizzou. We are in the midst of homecoming week right now which I'll tell you about more next week. But last week, we pulled off a pretty major feat for a college marching band, and the credit goes to lots of folks affiliated with Marching Mizzou, but mostly to our director, Dr. Amy Knops. The path to breaking the internet, according to Dr. Knops, started by seeing a video sometime in the spring or early summer of robots dancing for a commercial by the K-pop world sensations, BTS. And immediately, seeing the robot dance made her say, well, that would be pretty cool if Marching Mizzou pulled it off. Then she found out that the engineering school at Mizzou got a grant to purchase a number of the robot dogs that are seen in this video. She saw a path to forging a collaboration with the College of Engineering for the show. There were a number of meetings throughout to see what options were possible, what moves the robot Spot could actually do, and how to make it work in a marching band show format. What was figured out was that we could have Spot march with us to the stadium, then have Spot march a spot, in quotes, on the field as a marcher while being controlled from the front sideline. So that was one element. The coup de grace, though, was our Golden Girls feature of Dancing to Dancing Machine, by the Jackson 5, where Spot gets programmed off of his controller and onto a computer with pre-programmed dance moves, designed by the engineering faculty and students and performed with a lot of guidance from our Golden Girls director, Kayla Timberlake. This took a few extra seconds in the moment to switch over to, but once it was on, it came off perfectly and better, than it had ever gone in rehearsal. And I kid you not, the engineering students that we worked with celebrated like they'd won the Super Bowl. It was awesome. And a crowd loved it too. Oh yeah, and then there were the cameras. The sideline was packed with photographers of all sorts of credentials getting their close-ups with Dancing Spot. And the social media buzz that came off of it was pretty special. And the weather which rained out a full rehearsal's worth of time during that week, managed to hold off for both our morning practice and the halftime show, so we felt really fortunate there. Not so fortunate, our football team, who lost badly at home to Tennessee. All right, let's get to Patricia Islas. I'm meeting Patricia for the first time in this interview, and it was a pleasure to get to chat with her. I became aware of Patricia, through her involvement with the Girls' March summer program, created and run by previous podcast guest Rachel Taylor and involving previous guests Paige Durr and Annie Chernow. Patricia is connected further through her involvement with the percussion program at Capel High School in Texas, where Girls' March was held and where Annie Chernow had run the program. Patricia, along with her partner and colleague, Doug Bush, have been creating their own path for many years as percussion specialists in Texas. Patricia's work involves teaching, performing, collaborating, arranging, and composing, and as you'll hear, she's been able to make it work as her career, even before she was finished with her undergrad. We covered a whole lot in our conversation, so we'll once again be splitting this up into two parts. In part one, we'll get to the extensive percussion responsibilities, how she's avoided burnout, finding the time to perform and compose, and meeting the challenges of setting up the life she's wanted. In part two, we'll get to the rest of the story. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on September 14th, 2021, and it begins right now. Is that a, like a, a galaxy nebula or something like that behind you?
1: Yeah. yeah. I think it's, I don't know. I think maybe it's done from a photograph, but, um, I'm super into space. I'm like a, you know, a science nerd. So awesome. Uh, that sparks joy in my room here. So it's oh good. <laughs> it's <there. laughs>
0: and then the other thing is if something comes up and I have no idea what this would be, but if something comes up and you don't want to talk about it, whatever's your way of telling me to stop with the, uh, you know, the interview, just give me, show me, give me the sign. On that. Sure. <laughs> just walk out of the room, just, um, you know, ev- evaporate into the galaxy, you know, whatever.
1: Yeah, I will do that. I've been practicing that, so I'm ready. Oh, good. Um, yeah, sounds great. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so Patricia, give me a summation of your percussion activities as they are right now.
1: It definitely changes throughout the year for me. Uh, I like to think that there are, Sometimes that are a bit busier than others, but it's kind of always busy. Right now, I've just completed uh, the portion of my year where I'm writing and arranging for a marching band. Like that gets pretty intense at the end of the summer. Like the end of July, beginning of August is, is probably one of the craziest moments of the year because I'm trying to complete the arrangements. And on top of that... All of the uh, drumline camp slash marching band camp stuff is getting rolling, so those kind of overlap. Uh, so I'm trying to teach potentially like five hour days Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday, and then also finishing up writing. So it gets a little bit crazy there, um, but we're past that now. And currently, you know, school has started. Uh, I'm primarily teaching lessons. Like I have a percussion studio of about. 40, 45 students right now um, through Coppell. That's usually, it's a little bit more than normal, um, but I'm teaching lessons. And then uh, on top of that at Capel, you know, the, the marching band thing is happening. They have rehearsal almost every day after school, uh, football games on Fridays. But on Wednesdays is the day that we, the drumline has off for marching band rehearsal. We get to focus primarily on our standalone drumline show. You know, we we do the competitive marching band show and and that's a big deal, Um, but the kids also perform a completely separate, you know, six to seven minute show of of additional music. That's just drumline that we typically take to drumline contests. And we record a really awesome video at the end of the season and everything. Um, So Wednesdays is our day to do that. And so myself and my husband, who I also work with, Doug Bush, um, we go up on Wednesdays and work with the kids there. also, on top of that, <laughs> there's uh, you know a couple of schools that we potentially will clinic for, uh, groups that maybe we've written for for the season or local groups that we you know kind of work hand in hand with. Um, one of which this year is Wakeland High School. They're up in Frisco and um, their percussion director Brian Teed has had us write the marching band and, and actually drumline show beats for a couple years now. And they've been invited to go to the Midwest Convention. Oh, Both sweet. their band and their percussion program has been invited. You know, they actually were invited in 2020, but because of COVID and like nothing happened, it was this year that they're actually going to go. And Brian commissioned us to write a percussion ensemble, along with a, another guy, Justin Shel- Shelton, who kind of does some of their sound design out there. We've collaborated on a piece. Doug and I are going to perform with the kids. Uh, at Midwest this year, so we're working on that and going out that, going out there for some of that, so it's kind of a lot of things all happening at once, but that's typically the team in East last way, so it's pretty normal.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's begin here. Where are you centrally located? Are you in Capel? Uh,
1: I live in Plano, Texas. Okay which is a little bit of a drive from Capel. It's like maybe a 30, 45 minute drive from Capel. Mm-hmm. Um a little north of, of Dallas probably 30 35 minutes north of Dallas.
0: Okay. And how how far are the other schools that you were mentioning? Are they in the in the same general range?
1: The same general range. We found that like Plano is a is a good landing spot because it's Fairly centrally located to a lot of the places that we'll go. Frisco is about a 30 minute drive north from here. Um, Coppell is probably about a 30 to 45 minute drive, depending on traffic um, from where we are. So it's not too bad. Um, I think the furthest that I've gone on a regular basis has been either to Sherman. There's a period where I was living in Plano and teaching in Sherman, which is like really north. Closer to Oklahoma, it's like an hour from here. And then um, there's another period where I was teaching out in Forney and that's kind of an hour in the other direction. Um, but for a- the most part, hour point, south. Yeah, an hour south okay. and a little bit east of where I live. So um, yeah, so it's you know tech, like the Dallas area is really big, um, but there are a lot of pockets that uh, I've I've worked in and interacted with that have been relatively close by.
0: Of the things that you're doing, uh, the teaching lessons, the writing, um, which of them came first and where did that all begin?
1: Well, I've never had like a real job per se. (laughs) I've always done music stuff. Like the second I graduated from high school, um, like the next month I was teaching private lessons. I had no clue what I was doing, but I was getting in there and uh, trying to help out and trying to figure it out, trying to make some money. Um, so I guess technically the teaching came first, you know, I was also, uh, as, as a freshman in college working with my old high school and then a couple others, uh, taking front ensemble stuff. So, um, I've kind of taught this whole time, uh, the, the performing part of what I do. I've also, you know, I picked up a love for it in middle school and in high school, and have found ways to continue to perform, even as an educator and a composer and a arranger, which for me is kind of a necessity. <laughs> you know, I kind yeah. of have to play. Mm-hmm. I've discovered that about myself. Like I am at my most happy and balanced when I'm having, even if I'm just working on something for myself or you know, working on recordings to just post online, I have to do that. So, well, you know, and
0: what's what's brilliant about uh, getting at Midwest is that you know, you're you're like, well, obviously I'm going to find a way to play on this concert.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that <laughs> I'm not letting
0: out. this opportunity go. <laughs> yeah,
1: that worked out for sure. It was not my idea, but uh, I was happy to agree to doing it, when
0: yeah.
1: it. Um, yeah, so like just finding these like, small little pockets, windows of, of opportunities to play has been really useful to me in a lot of ways Um, and then the composition thing like when I was younger I used to assume that you know there were kind of two types of people there were like the people who were going to be really creative and good at writing music and you had to study all of that to have like some imaginary certification to be able to do that and then the people like me who would would just really study how to play music and maybe teach music Um, and I didn't realize how accessible it could be, or how everyone, I believe now, because of my experience with it, that everyone who considers themselves a musician should at least try it. Um, I feel like in our, our typical strong band programs that I'm in every day, like there's a lot of really incredible music education happening, but there's like a big hole in that the kids aren't ever asked to arrange music or encouraged to write music. And there's so much understanding that can come and appreciation that can come when you have to get your hands dirty and figure out how to draw like a treble clef sign (laughs) and like how many notes actually can fit in a measure and how rests work and how time signatures work and dynamics. Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started on (laughs) dynamics. So, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't think that that was going to be something that I would do. And even in college, it wasn't like, uh, a lot of people around me were writing or arranging. Um, not, I wasn't seeing my peers do it a lot. Uh, it was a lot about playing and being a really good player and being learning uh, about a lot of different styles of music and different percussion ensembles and being exposed to a lot of different things. But I kind of got towards the end of of my uh, undergraduate degree and was looking around and thinking, like, first of all, I was sitting in departmental class uh, where you know there's like. 130 percussion majors and everyone has to get up and perform for each other at some point in the semester so you know you're hearing a lot of marimba solos uh and a lot of them were kind of the same thing you know the 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 best ones rise to the top and everyone's kind of playing the same thing over and over again and i knew i wanted to continue playing and i was thinking like but i don't want to be another person who's who's trying to play these pieces. There's already people out there that are incredible and they're playing these pieces really, really, really well. And I don't wanna be a, like a knockoff Shi Wu <laughs> or like a knockoff Michael Burry. I wanna be like my own version. And I was looking at the faculty, the incredible teachers that I had available to me and all of them were composers or arrangers or improvisers and creating music on their own. and even though it wasn't said directly, it was like, well, if if they're doing it and they're doing it at such a high level and I want to kind of emulate that, maybe I should start figuring out how to find my own voice as a composer, or as an arranger. Um, so that started with uh, some arrangements like my very first arrangement that I did was uh, a Pat Metheny tune, Heat of the Day. Uh, I was really getting into Pat Metheny at the time. And like, this is a song that obviously would fit well with percussion. So I just kind of like, well, let's do this. And I got a lot of my friends involved and we we played it at that departmental and it was really successful. Uh, We got a lot of compliments on it and I had a blast and everyone had a blast. And it was like, okay, this is a thing I could continue doing. This seems cool. And so it was a lot of just experimentation and exploration. I took like maybe two composition classes uh, my senior year, but um, one of them was helpful and the other one was not what I expected. Uh, <laughs> and then after that, I just kind of, uh, once I graduated, I, I bought myself a vibraphone because I also realized I'm not going to have anything to play on. I'm not going to have access to a marimba in a second, as soon as I'm done here. So I couldn't afford a marimba, but I, bought a, I could afford a vibe. So I bought a set of vibes and I sat down and I just started creating. I just started writing and experimenting.
0: The process by which you are starting to write, particularly after you're done, how long does that lead into either writing original music or arranging at that point for drum lines and fronts and all that stuff?
1: Probably in the last year or so, year and a half of my time in college, I was also simultaneously getting into teaching drum corps. I never marched anywhere, um, but uh, through uh, my relationship with Doug, he was he was teaching drum corps called Southwind, and uh, they needed some help, and they needed a front ensemble tech, so I was going out there and working with them a little bit, and that was an opportunity. I wasn't writing the beats there, but that was an opportunity for me to experiment a little bit with arrangement because we were performing in I&E. Like we would do a percussion mm-hmm. ensemble. And so I would do, um, I think we did Heat of the Day, a version of Heat of the, Heat of the Day. Um, I arranged, I was really into Bjork at the time. I was, yeah. I, just, I still am. She's yeah, like, yeah, you
0: should be, that should be a, a, an ongoing favorite, thing.
1: Yeah, she's like my favorite artist of all time of any genre of art. Awesome. Uh, I love Bjork. And so I did a version of one of her songs, an arrangement of one of her songs, uh, a Michelle Camilo tune. And so uh, that was good practice for me because uh, I was learning like what things were working and what things were going to be really difficult to achieve for even a high-level group. Uh, and we're rehearsing every day. So having that direct interaction with the people that were playing my music was really useful and important. Um, I also, through drum Corps, we got some connections of writing some band shows, like very small groups like in Oklahoma where you know we get notes that the there's two timpani and they're they're broken and they can only do notes of like b flat and f and the key signature of most of the show is like i don't know e major right <laughs> of course of course <laughs> like uh okay <laughs> is, these are some interesting parameters that i have to be creative in uh-huh. um so that was starting up also um Doug and I were were teaching at at Sherman at the time. He was the percussion director and I was teaching lessons. Um, But of course, we were also working with the the marching band and the drum line. And because it was a fairly small program, we had the flexibility to write the percussion book ourselves. So I was writing for the marching band there. Um, We also dabbled a little bit in indoor. And so there was some experimentation there working with the kids in that program. So that started a little bit, it started getting going, I started getting a little bit of experience, Um, but it really took off, at least my writing and arranging for Drumline really took off um, when uh, I started teaching at John Horn High School. Um, It's in Mesquite, it's located in Mesquite, which I guess if you're looking at the Metroplex is kind of a little bit east of Dallas. socioeconomically it is not a very wealthy type situation I mean you're dealing with kids kind of in the inner city that like a lot of them uh, have have challenges like maybe their 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 dad is in prison and they're living with their aunt or you know they uh, just moved to the country and they're trying to figure some stuff out you know but uh, that was a really unique and special place to kind of to get my feet wet and learn a lot of things about teaching and about writing because uh because the kids there were really passionate about it because it was this this thing that was uh unlike any other thing in their life that was you know taken to an extreme high high level they were asked to show up and work really really hard and there were people teaching them and standing around them that expected a lot out of them which I think in a lot of cases for, for those types of kids, they hadn't experienced before. Um, so that was a really special experience for me, but I kind of been teaching a little bit. Like I'd, I'd gone and taught a camp or two there over the summer and uh, they, they started to get a little bit better. Like John Bingaman was their percussion director at the time. He was, he was the reason that I was there. Um, and he had start to grow, started to grow the program a little bit. And they were having a little bit more competitive success, but there was kind of this block. They couldn't get past the beats like they were starting to perform better than the quality of the music that they were playing. Mm -hmm. So John asked Doug and I to arrange their music one year. I think it was 2010 was the first year. 2010 or 2011 was the first year that we wrote for them then um and it was kind of a special situation because we were writing for them but we were also teaching camps and spending a lot of time with the program and teaching lessons there so we could really have the opportunity to bring our music to life the way that we had envisioned it which isn't always the case but I think that also really helped for the music to be expressed in a way that as it was intended um and so with that, you know, the, the group had a lot of competitive success. And so, you know, people were giving it more attention and hearing our beats and liking what we were doing. So then people started reaching out and like, oh, will you write our marching band show book or will you write a drumline show for us? And that's kind of how that ball started getting rolling. Kind of simultaneously, uh, I was working on my own creative projects. Like I was playing a lot more vibraphone. I, honestly, I had not played a ton of vibraphone when I went before I had bought the instrument. Um, So I was trying to figure out what that instrument was about. And uh, I was also interested in like trying to create some original music. Um, I was listening to a lot of different things. And I I mean, obviously, like all of us do, I hope Uh, we have a passion for just good music and finding what that is. And so this was an outlet for me to kind of creatively express all the things that I was hearing all of these artists I was listening to do. It was like, oh, those are really cool toys. I want to play with them. Let me figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, Doug and I had kind of created this duo, Team Eastloss, that we were performing. He was playing drum set primarily. I was playing uh, vibraphone. Sometimes we would perform with uh, a bass player, a guitarist, uh, I was also really, at the time, into, like, electronic artists. I mean, Bjork was doing her thing, but also, like, Square Pusher and um, Aphex Twin were doing really cool things that would just fascinated me at the time. Like, there's all of these interesting textures and this compositional structure that I had not really been exposed to before, and this instrument that wasn't acoustic, but it was really exciting, so I, my, I had a mission to try and figure out how to blend the two, like try to figure some electronic stuff out, but also do that with acoustic instruments. So that was kind of what Teamy Sauce was becoming. We were finding any opportunity we could to perform, you know, sometimes little coffee shops, sometimes downtown in, in Deep Ellum and clubs where like Slayer had performed back in the day, and then we're playing our little, you know, vibraphone drum set duet thing. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Um, percussion ensembles, you know, like percussion ensemble concerts are really big in, in the DFW area, especially in the spring. And so we'd often come out and, um, play some of our, our stuff with, with the students there for those concerts. So just any opportunity to perform, uh, our stuff, we would we tried to take it.
0: Got it. So, so originals and then, you know, these, the Slayer place was probably all into all the Bjork covers. Oh, yeah. The dual album, you know, stuff that you were probably uh, pulling out. So,
1: yeah, I mean, that was fun because uh, there was there was one gig that we did. You know, there uh, Erica Badu is big in the Dallas area and there were a lot of musicians that would play with her. And I think every Wednesday night they would like have a jam session, basically. And so we opened for that once or twice. And it was always interesting to see the audience's reaction to us, like we're setting everything up and they're like, what is this? What is this going to be? And then we'd start playing and then you see them kind of like, oh, no, this is really cool. This is different and this is really cool. And uh, there's a lot of like, obviously, passion here and like, where'd you guys go to school? Where are you from? Like, where did you come from? Um, Kind of that realization that was always fun.
0: No, that's 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 super cool uh, that that's working out that way. How long have you been uh, involved with Capel? Uh,
1: I first started working with Capel in, I think, 2016. Doug was there uh, one year before I was. Uh, the percussion director before Annie Tranow, um was Zach Shear. And I think maybe we had gone to school with Zach. He might have been just like at the tail end of when I was about to graduate. Um, we overlapped just a little bit. But uh, you know, he had seen our stuff and knew about us, and um, had had heard about our reputation in terms of teaching, and had heard music that we'd written. And he was really adamant about getting us to to help him out at Capel. He wanted to change the program there. At the time, he had that he had been there only for a little bit, maybe a year, before Doug got there, and um, he was already trying to uh the start to develop the program even more from when he inherited it um they had already won call for tapes for PASIC at that point and so the percussion ensemble scene at Capo was was rolling like the kids were really hyped about it then they were coming up with percussion ensembles they wanted to play but the drum line scene still needed some help and uh, needed some life brought to it and so Doug moved over there to work a little bit with the drumline um, and teach a couple lessons. And then in 2016, we wrote for the marching band show. And that was the very first year we did a standalone drumline show. Um, and then I started teaching lessons there as well and working a little bit with the drumline. Um, I was still at, at a couple other schools at that time. Uh, I think maybe we're still teaching at Horn and then there's another school in the area, Highland Park High School and in Highland Park, Texas is which is like Dallas, Dallas, uh, like a very wealthy part of Dallas. Uh, and that was a really strong program. so we're teaching like a day or two there. Um, so it was it wasn't like a complete shift over to Capel immediately, but uh, it was like a slow kind of movement in that direction um, because of Zach Shear working with the drum line and, and writing the show and all
0: of that. So w- when you've been moving through all these different districts over the years, how are you making decisions about how many students you want to take? How are you invested in one school, but moving to another? How is I, I'm, this is, this part seems hazy to me. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how, how are you able to kind of move in and out of all these different places in the ways that you are?
1: When I initially went into college i knew i didn't want to be uh, a band director (laughs) i grew up in uh the colony texas which is another suburb of dallas a bit north and when i was there in like the mid to late 90s uh not a lot going on in the colony except for the band program the band program was like pretty banging in terms of like competitive sex success for like a, a high school Texas high school marching band, we, our band program, we did we did all we checked off all the boxes like UIL state marching contest finalists, marching at the Rose Bowl parade, um, TMA honor bands, you know, invited to perform in Meso, like all the stuff. And so, it, you know, I was really fortunate to have those experiences. But I was looking around at the the directors. And they looked, they took a toll for sure. Like all of that seemed very stressful and intense. Mm. And I knew that's not what I want, the route that I didn't want to go. Um, but I wasn't exactly sure when I got out of college, what my path would be.
0: To even back then, the results of that kind of life on the rest of what you ever, on, the, on your well-being, you already were like, that's no, I'm not, yeah. I'm not doing that.
1: I love music, I love making music, I like playing music, but uh, I could tell that that specific career path was really intense even back then. Um, and I knew that wasn't going to be, I wasn't gonna be able to fill what I needed out of a music career by doing that. Um, so it was off the table but it wasn't that I didn't enjoy teaching. (laughs) I did enjoy teaching. I mean, even when I was in middle school and in high school, I was helping my friends out, learning things like percussion ensembles that they were struggling. I was kind of already doing it from the beginning. Um, So, you know, through teaching lessons and through teaching drumline camps over the summer and, uh, you know, working with the occasional percussion ensemble or class here or there, I was able to fulfill that uh, need of of being able to share what I do with others to like be an educator, but I didn't have the constraints of being tied to one specific program, with all the weight and responsibilities that comes with that that isn't related at all to teaching, right? I had much more freedom to be able to choose what programs that I worked with. <laughs> Uh, and there are a lot of them here in Texas, and, and some are, more, are better experiences than others from a teaching standpoint. Um, I was able to choose where I worked and also who I worked with, which, as I'm sure you know, like sometimes you can do really difficult things that suck. But if the people you're around are incredible, it's fine. You're going to be fine. Um And it could be the other two. Oh, it can definitely be the other way around very, very easily. You can have, you know, on paper, it can be like the perfect ideal thing. And it can be miserable because of just one person's attitude. So, you know, for me, that worked out really great because it was, uh, I was getting everything that I wanted from it. I mean, I could take on as many lessons as I needed. I think at the most, I'd probably ever had was probably somewhere between like 50 and 55 lessons at various different schools. Like there was a a lot a a long period where I would be at two different in two different districts or three different districts throughout the week. And that worked out well, because if something went down at one school um, or if, you know, percussion director decided to leave and I didn't know who was coming in or they had their own team of people, then I had these other schools that I could rely on. So there was a sense of security there, even though I was doing a job that doesn't typically, you don't typically view teaching lessons of having security. Security because uh, I had built that in uh, to the system. And what was really fantastic that I realize now, having looking back, looked back at it all, is that I was still getting an education. I was learning how to teach by seeing the insides of all of these different programs. Um, which I think is extremely uh, effective in, in my ability to teach now. Like, I think everyone who wants to be a music educator should force themselves, e- if, even if it's while they're in college, to teach in as many different programs as they can, because you're going to see the good, the bad and the ugly. You're going to see stuff that that it definitely does not work. And you're going to see it firsthand. And you're also going to discover tools and tricks that you never even knew could be effective by watching things work. Um, so that was uh, really integral in, in my development, was continuing to teach in different programs and work with different educators um, and deal with different types of kids. You know, that's a challenge, too. Is like, you know, every it's tough as like a, a you know, percussion director or band director because you're uh, isolated with your program all the time and you're kind of insulated and you don't see what's happening down the road. And so it's very easy to go like, oh, well, this is a problem because of the situation I'm in because of the school I'm at, because of the support that I don't get, but there are uh, problems like that everywhere. They're just different. So by being in different programs and being in different districts is able to like kind of navigate that a little bit easier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that in the position that you're in. When even though it's more it's 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 high school focus. But, you know, when you do get to maybe if you get to clinic at a college uh, here and there, do you, do you tell the students like you should be at the very least, if you're interested in this, going back to your high school and doing and helping with the summer, any of the summer stuff or like. You're, you're I, I would hope, paying this forward, basically, to, to oh. the next generation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in those situations, we usually get, like, an hour to talk with a studio, you know, and some of that might be playing. There might be playing involved. But, you know, having been around this activity and been around, I mean, Texas is known for like being kind of the promised land for music education, especially for percussion education, because we have so many opportunities and so much funding our way um, that it also, we have kind of turned it into like this almost impossible machine. I mean, obviously I think everyone at this point is aware of like the, the burnout that happens and the, the turnover that happens. Um, And I think Part of it is the system, but I think a big part of it is that we've kind of done it to ourselves. Um, I mean, it's been around for a long time. It's not a new thing. Like I was saying, when I was in high school, I was kind of noticing it. There's so many young people who come out of college and they're excited to like kind of uh, get their hands dirty and like get in there and um, really do some cool things, but there's a lot of stuff that they're unaware of. There's a lot of real life skills that the job demands of them that they're not even aware of, nor are they prepared for. And so, yeah, anytime uh, Doug and I get the opportunity to, to talk to a college group, we, we're trying to like cram in as much of that real-life information as possible. Like, this is going to be really hard. And these are the things that are important. And uh, these are the things you should be doing now to set yourself up the best that you possibly can if you are really serious about being a music educator. Um, I mean, that, that list is endless. So yes, definitely anytime we get to talk with college students, that's a big priority.
0: No, that's great. It's interesting. I think I would have, I was going to save this for a later point in the, in our conversation, but it, but it seems relevant now. It's because you mentioned the burnout factor. And when I talked to Annie on the show she had said, "I asked her about specifically. It was like two years ago or so that there was a period of time where I and I don't know. I know some people who teach percussion. I mean, I don't know everybody. Yeah. yeah. But it felt like there was there was this moment where like fifteen people, le- like not and I'm not saying left a job. I'm saying left the field. Yeah. And they weren't that old." yeah and i don't know if you caught like what was your if you saw that at the moment that that did that even make you think to yourself i need to actually like rethink how my life is going to go if i see this going on
1: i'm in kind of a weird position uh because because of the path that i have taken has not been as direct as i think a lot of music educators take um, and it's kind of been a choose your own adventure way of doing all the things that I wanted to do. Like right now, um, I'm probably the most satisfied and happy with what my roles are as a as having a music career. All of the, the different outlets that I have to to explore the things that I want to do, I'm able to do. Um, and that is very different than a lot of music educators because they're going directly into the school and they have like a full-time job and they they definitely don't have the time to, or the freedom to do things that I get to do. So I've kind of seen it from the inside and also like as an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when that happened, I know what you're talking about. When that happened, it wasn't a surprise in any re- for any reason. Uh, just... <laughs> For whatever reason that year it happened to like culminate in so many people coming to that decision at the same time um i'm sure there's like scientific and mathematical reasons why that's the case but uh yeah i mean it is it's it's definitely a thing and you know it's a complicated it's a complicated thing i mean there are a lot of reasons for it but one of the the biggest ones i feel like in our area is because so many people are so darn competitive Right it, And a lot of people that teach here uh, also grew up here like myself. And so they went through middle school and high school programs that were really competitive. and a lot of it was about like winning this drumline competition and winning this uh, call for tapes thing and you know, making all state and getting ones at solo contests. and every every challenge there was this tied into it was this level of competition and winning. Um, And it wasn't always it's not commonly even still about just making really fantastic music and improving the, the skills and ability to work together of young people like that's what I love about education about music education, especially but that's not really the common message that's being sent to these young kids. And so they spend all their time in these really high functioning programs doing all these things. And they're not really having time to explore any other activities because uh, it's so involved. And they go like, OK, now I have to figure out what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I have to figure out where I'm going to go to school. And there's so much pressure on these kids, too, to like determine what that is. Like it's like you have to make this decision now when you're 17 years old and you can't ever change it. Like they, it feels like there's so much pressure to set that up. And they look around and like I haven't done anything but music and I'm pretty good at drumming. So let's go into music education and they have no idea what that means and they have no idea what the job is but they just you know one foot in front of the other they just walk towards it and then they get in school they get in college and it's kind of a little bit more of the same I mean it's not obviously the same everywhere um but you know, there's a lot of playing involved. They're playing in percussion ensembles. You know, they're taking theory classes and music history classes that they weren't doing in high school, of course. Um, there's more education happening, but there's not a lot of focus on uh, turning what they, their skills are into outwardly. Like now it's not going to be about you anymore. It's going to be about the kids that you're in front of, the people that you're trying to teach, the people that you're working with. You know, it's not necessarily this competitive driven thing anymore. It has to be, something much bigger than that. Um, But there's not a lot of um, guidance in terms of what they should be thinking about or concentrating on in college, where they have access to a lot of really fantastic professors and access to each other and experimentation. Um, So they get out and they don't really understand at all what the gay is about. And then they're dropped into this mega program where they're the percussion person now, and they think they're just gonna go and get to teach drumline and play and learn how to play clean beats. And it is not that at all, but they're expecting themselves to be able to achieve all of those things that, you know, like to, to be like BOA champions and first at state and all of those things that they were trying to achieve in high school, because I think that that is the, the measure of success that if you do those things, if you win everything, then you are successful at your job. Um, But that's unsustainable and it's unrealistic it's like, they're looking at this program over here that does really well at BOA. And they're like, I have to do that as well as them. And they're looking at this completely different program over here, who's doing really great things in percussion ensembles. Like I have to be as good as that. And they're looking at this program here that like, it's about the individual. And they put a lot of effort into their lesson program in studio and their kids are doing well at state, uh, like state auditions and solos. And they think they have to do just as well as that person too. And it's, it's kind of, ridiculous when you think about it that way it's ridiculous but trying to explain that to someone (laughs) from my standpoint where I've seen this happen time and time again is is next to impossible like try to explain to someone like yeah you guys are doing great like you're in the top three at this contest and you've only been here for a year like that's fine you don't need to stress out so much about it you don't need to be killing yourself about it you're you're on the right path for people who have not ever heard that before, for people who have not thought about like, maybe it's not just about winning everything. It's difficult. It's a difficult pill to swallow. And it's it's really hard to convince them to view this whole thing in a different light. Um, but in my experience, it's possible. It's possible to have a program that's really successful competitively, but doesn't focus on the competition. Um, and that's a really great place to be. You know, I feel like at Capel, uh, through a long process that started, you know, with with Zach and now with Annie, and now continuing with the new percussion director, Randall Wynn, who just took over after Annie left, um, the culture has been trying to develop in a way that it's not about winning everything, that it's for the love of music and passion of and excitement of making music it's It's like teamwork is like working together on this thing that's really hard and seeing ourselves progress and seeing ourselves get better at it. It's about building skills in the individual to be just an effective human, <laughs> you know, right. yeah. which is so important. Yeah. Um, and it's not just about winning. Sometimes you put yourself in the conversation if you if your aim is just to be excellent. In a, in a variety of things, you put yourself in the conversation and you, you might win some stuff sometimes, but it's not the end all be all. It's not the ultimate goal. Yeah. But that's hard. That's much harder. That's It's much harder to motivate young people. It's very easy to be like, oh, we're going to work really hard because we want to win. You know? It's
0: that a clear message.
1: It, it makes so much sense. Yeah, it, <laughs> to everyone instantly, it's much harder to convince someone to, you know, play something that they've been playing forever for months again to make it like this much, which is a, t- a tiny bit better. And that that tiny bit is so much, mu- so much harder than it was when we were at stage one, when you're at stage 40. And it's so much more rewarding when you see that little bit of improvement at stage 40. It's so hard to convince someone of that, but it's worth it. <laughs> Because ultimately, it's such such a better, healthier existence day to day. It's totally worth it.
0: Yeah, completely agree. I love how you explain like the that's like there's like the large amount of, of work of, of, of improvement. And then when you get <laughs> to the top and it's like, oh, just it may be like one dynamic and four notes. And if we can get yes. that
1: on. <laughs> yes, yes 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 it's hard that they so tough to like to communicate but you know when when that becomes a trend even kids can experience that they can feel the difference yeah. you know and and like getting to to be there with them and take them through that process is so incredibly cool really rewarding yeah. um and that's one of the reasons why i I knew I couldn't be a band director because I wouldn't have the patience or the energy to be able to explore that or experience that because of the weight of everything else. Something definitely needs to change. A big part of it is like the attitude of, of the people who are actually doing the job needs to change a little bit in terms of not expecting them to carry all of these, uh, responsibilities, like with so much weight, I don't know, like to, um, basically expect so much of themselves, like right out of the gate, you know, the people who are really successful or had programs that have done really impressive things, haven't just done it their first year. It takes time. You know, when you walk into a new program, even if you are an experienced teacher, it takes, you know, I have noticed that it takes probably about five years before the culture sh- shifts and you have kids that you've started like right. coming to the high school. And, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. Um, right. Yeah, I think you know, we just have to be a little bit more aware of what's possible, aware of what uh is realistic, and focus our attention in things that we control. <laughs> I think that's just a human nature thing too. Like people tend to focus a lot of attention in things that you know they have no ability. Yeah, maybe there are severe problems, but they don't have the ability to. It, to change them in any way but yeah there's a lot of like mental ram being spent on that stuff versus like these other things over here that may be smaller may seem more insignificant but you have complete control over and you can make huge strides in these small things yeah. um, Just shifting that focus i think for an educator for themselves i think is going to be key to, to changing that in some way even just a little bit because it's tough it is it is definitely a thing.
0: And you have the situations where where someone who looks at the at the people who are who are who are currently band directors or are currently percussion specialists, they don't know that they, they won't know until they're in it all the other that like the teaching part is the easy is by far the easiest thing that you're dealing with. Yeah. It's all the prep, it's all the emails, it's all the meetings, it's all the phone calls, it's all the parents, it's all the school boards, it's all the football coach, like yeah. it, it's all of the other stuff. Is 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 a huge part of that job that you just you until you're doing it, as you know, you're not you just have no idea that that's also what you're dealing with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, management skills and and leadership skills like, you know, at a program like Capel, you could have like 100, 120 or 30 kids total from sixth grade through high school through seniors that you're trying to to deal with and manage, then that's a lot of people and their parents involved as well. And then you have a staff, you know, some of these big band programs have like a head band director and assistant band directors and color guard directors and, you know, multiple percussion directors, fortunately at some of these schools. And that's a lot of people that you're having to interact with and the ability to communicate well with those people and realize you're on the same team and uh, having those like social skills, are, are not necessarily ones that are cultivated in uh, music, edu- getting your four year music education degree. I mean, it can't be, there's just too much stuff there. Yeah. Um, but it's all of those things that we're talking about that are things that will make or break you that will, you know, make the job easy, not easy, but easier <laughs> or uh, make it just impossible. So that, you know, quality people just realize it's just too big and they have to, to do something else. I think that's it. I mean, also, you know, I don't know that it's necessary for people to, to pick one career their whole life and just do that. Sure. I don't think there's any harm in like I do this for a while and I learn a lot from that and I, I grow a lot in that experience. And then, you know, that I've kind of gotten what I need from that. And now I want a, a new challenge and I want to take that into a, a different area. I think that's fine. Um, and I think a lot of the people that we're seeing leaving are, are finding that yeah. for themselves too. I think that's part of it
0: so in seven years when when we see that you're on the international space station we'll know that you know you've you've adjusted to your new uh lot in life i guess
1: absolutely Absolutely. actually i was just watching there's a like a documentary series on netflix that just popped up That's like following um spacex and they're sending civilians to space Mm -hmm. um and so i was watching that and that was really fascinating and so they have like you know, a nurse that they're sending up, she's like 29 years old and they have, you know, a a lady that's like in her 50s, she's always wanted to go to space. And now she's finally getting this opportunity. It's like, yeah, I don't know that I personally would have the guts to actually go through with that. I think I'm too much of a (laughs) wimp on that end. I can live it vicariously through these people on this show. (laughs) Fair enough.
0: (laughs) One other aspect I, I know that you, that recently you, you, discussed at least on social media is that i believe last year you came out with your first book of music right
1: yeah 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 momentum um yeah i'm super proud of that project uh you know there's a lot of reasons for taking the time to create something like that for me one of which was just to have some material to work with with my own students in my own you know lesson studio um you know there are a lot of materials out there for for mallet playing and um, for, for snare drumming. My husband actually created a book called Super Hands, which is kind of uh, the, the drumming version of Momentum. He wrote that before I did. So I was able to kind of learn a little bit from his process to create my version. But um, yeah, of like, you know, there, there are problems that I see every single year of, you've got young kids that they, they get out of sixth grade and they're just learning how to get around a keyboard instrument. And maybe they play a short etude and then they jump to seventh grade and they might have an opportunity to play like one more two mallet solo. And then at the same time, they're also learning how to hold these four mallets and it's uncomfortable and it hurts and it's really technically advanced and they haven't really had a chance to explore what playing marimba is about or get an appreciation for it. And so I've seen a lot of kids that, you know, are very capable who kind of, see like marimba is pretty hard especially if i'm being asked to play with four mallets pretty soon i barely learned where all the notes are and how to read music um and so that kind of turns them off in a lot of cases because the challenge is so incredibly high and it keeps getting higher every year um so a big part of creating the book was to try and uh give some tools to players like that to help develop their skills so they can kind of gain a greater appreciation for the instrument and still develop learning how to play marimba while they're working on four mallets um but in a way that was musically challenging as well um but yeah it's a collection of exercises uh some short etudes like eight measures to 16 measure etudes and then there's 10 two mallet solos in the back of the book um so i i, I you know, I tried to organize it in a way that, you know, with with the, the concept of like, okay, here are all the problems that I'm kind of seeing with two mallet playing or four mallet playing, just some really good, successful programs. And let me, let me see if I can help alleviate some of those problems by how I've organized the exercises and the types of org- exercises in the book, like... What things type like though, specifically
0: like what what are well, your, like the, the things issue? like
1: dynamics right mm-hmm. like um how much time in front of a group or in front of a student is spent you know yelling at them to play something softer or to play something louder right
0: <laughs> usually if, softer let's let's be like if we were to play the percentages it's probably usually,
1: usually softer but <laughs> you know sometimes it is <laughs> it is the other way too um but you know When we get, especially to like drumline setting or like the high school setting, there's only so much time you have and there's endless amount of things to work on. So a lot of the exercise programs there are like, let's develop these skills, but we're doing it pretty much at forte the whole time. So throughout the book, there's about six chapters, I believe, of exercises and etudes. And so I tried to set it up in a sequential way. So like the first chapter, the exercises, they're all at forte, everything's the same. And then the next chapter introduces forte and piano. So you're playing all the, the exercises at these two dynamics, exploring like what that's about. And then the next chapter, you're adding mezzo piano and mezzo forte. And then the next chapter it adds crescendos and decrescendos. And then in kind of the later chapters, you're dealing with even accents, because we see that on marimba sometimes. Um, I, I don't
0: know why, but yeah, there, there are. <laughs> yeah, I don't,
1: I'm not sure why either. I can't figure that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so it, it it has like the sequential process of developing those skills but you get to spend time at each of them focusing on on developing control and what that sounds like through the different types of technical things that uh, the book is asking you to play um, also developing independence there's like some exercises that specifically target towards like coordination and independence, where one hand is playing one thing and the other hand is playing the other thing. We don't see it as often in two-mallet percussion, although I've utilized that in a lot of the solos. Um, but we see it all the time in four-mallet playing. So you know, if there's some exposure to it now, then when it comes up when you're doing your your four-mallet stuff for the first time, it's not brand new. I mean, those kids that have experience playing piano, I mean, that's great. They have that already built in a little bit, but I didn't have that experience as a young percussionist. And a lot of the ones that I'm teaching don't have that experience. So this is a chance to kind of get your feet wet with that a little bit, but the technique is still very familiar, Um, you know, things of that nature.
0: You know, it's, it's funny. It feels like because there's a number of folks in, in, in Texas who with their consistent work like you have with the with lines for, for so many years, because like you know, like Frank Chapel, uh Emily Tanner-Patterson came up with like a whole a whole um curriculum based on it. Um uh the Keenan Wiley, like, so there's lots of it's fun, like it, it seems it ends up being a really good um you, you know, incubator, it seems like, for okay. ideas where you're just sitting there like. I wish there was something that fixed this. Wait a minute.
1: Yeah. Let me just, <laughs> let me I just could do it. it. Yes. Um, but it's not easy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's taken years. Like to kind of compile all of that together has taken is like a couple of like two, two and a half years of like solid work. I mean, some of the solos in the back of the book I had started uh, like a decade ago, like I had like a couple of them written and with intent to maybe do something like this later on um but because the my year is so different from time to time I'm writing marching bands and I'm teaching a lot of drumline and I'm teaching there are only pockets when I have available to like really sink my teeth into projects outside projects like this so it's time consuming and then the thing you know that uh, people don't realize when they go to create a book or, you know, write a piece is that, you know, all of the layout stuff and the construction of the book takes a lot of time too. If you're, especially if you're going the self-publishing route, which is what I did, what Doug has done with his books, you get a lot of more control over the product. Like you get to own the rights to it. And um, if there's any edits that you have to do, you find things wrong with it. You have the ability to do that freely and, um, and then, just from a financial standpoint, you get to see more of 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 the earnings of what that that book brings in. But uh, it is a lot of extra work up front. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you have to do anything. all the
0: promotion though for it. I mean, that's, that's the that's cool. yeah. that's the challenge. Or and you have to be able to deal with the distribution. You have to you have to do all the the mailing, the packaging. Yeah. You know, you have to take care of all that too
1: yeah fortunately the the method that doug and i have gone we're going through a company that kind of does all that it's like print on demand Mm -hmm. so um they ship everything out they print it as it's ordered so i don't have like a full room of books lying Mm -hmm. around uh i know some people do that uh but that makes it a little bit more manageable and then from the promotion standpoint because of social media and, and access to everything that way it's gotten a lot easier someone like me to to be able to do this method and not have to go through a publishing company but it's it's definitely hard but so so worth it you know the book has done really well so far i mean it's been barely a year since it's been out it's already like a bestseller at lone star percussion um you know i've gotten so many incredible comments on people finding the book people that i know that are colleagues but also people that i don't even know from all sorts of places like and using it in all sorts of different ways. Like some of them are using it with their young students in their middle schools and high schools. And some people are using it with their college students and running them through the book. Um, I even ran into someone who was telling me that he'd already gone through grad school and had gotten to the point where he was playing so much he'd gotten burnt out and like needed to take a break. And so he took a break and wasn't sure if he was gonna come back and do this percussion thing cause he was so uh, affected by the burnout originally that and he picked up my book and he started playing through a couple of the solos and was like, it was because of uh, your music and a couple other things that I was playing that I started to find that love again for playing marimba and for playing percussion. I'm like, oh, that's so incredibly special. <laughs> that's something that I could write, you know, would affect someone that way. And they could use it as, as that kind of a tool, you know, as a composer, as a creative person, like I try to write things that I enjoy, but I don't have the assumption that like other people are always going to get it or that everyone's going to yep. get it or that anyone's going to get it. So when I hear people that uh, are, are responding in this way, it's, it's really incredible. Yeah.
0: But, you know, I'm, I'm glad you stated it like that in terms of not being sure about how other people are going to think about it, because I, I actually think, encounter- and, and as much art as you've encountered and, and, you know, over the years, the best art tends to be the most personal and the most directly relevant to the person creating versus trying to make something that's like, I guess, trying to connect.
1: Yeah, because it feels genuine. I think yeah. any any good piece of art, you can, you can feel that authentic, authenticity in, it comes down to like, what is art, right? If you go, if you zoom out really far, yeah. I mean, it can be a lot of things for a lot of different people, but for me, it's always, not always, but I think it's just a form of communication really. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's a method for us to explore and explain what we're about as individuals and our experiences about. And so when it comes to music, like, that's what I look for in the music that I'm listening to. I mean, I listen to a ton of different styles and genres, you know. And that's
0: just Bjork, by the way. I mean, yeah, that, that's only Bjork. Only Bjork.
1: <laughs> only Bjork. Uh, she, you know, she has a lot of different albums.
0: She so. does. And a lot of genres. Like, a you kind of genres. cover so much just with yeah. her.
1: <laughs> yeah, Sometimes it's more complex music, sometimes it's simple music, but if I feel like there's that message behind it or there's that a genuine uh, like realness from the artist coming through, then like I'm hooked, I'm grabbed. And that's the kind of thing I try to teach my students, too, is like in how they perform is to try and understand what the music is about or what you want to say about the music and then perform in a way that that's being communicated articulately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I try to do in everything that I write is try to be genuine and sometimes it's going to hit and some pe- people are not going to get it at all, but that's fine.
0: One other thing I wanted to ask about kind of the, the path is that, you know, you mentioned how you were, you, you've done, this is what you've done, like in terms of like you weren't taking other jobs, everything that you've did, that you focused on is, has been music um, focused in terms of your work past once you finished undergrad. Should I guess that that financially that was that was a challenge for a bit to get started? Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about just the, how the, the beginnings of of making that decision, but also realizing that you have you're going to have these financial challenges are going to show up just to kind of get your feet wet, for lack of a better word.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a risk. It's not an easy path. Uh, a big reason I've been able to do what I can do is because I had very supportive parents. And a very supportive family. Um, And it was always about. Finding something that you can be passionate about. And doing that. Opposed to being. Doing something that is like financially successful. But maybe that you hate. But you know. There's security there financially. Um, And also they can see how much I loved music. And how uh, much I was putting into it. So it was like. Oh we're not going to get in her way. We're going to let her do her thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you know, yeah, it's risky to to step out of college. And fortunately, I didn't have like a mountain of college debt that I know a lot of students, a lot of people deal with. Um, I was fortunate that my parents were able to, to take care of that. Teaching lessons isn't a consistent gig. Like you might have a certain number of lessons a week and you multiply that by how many weeks there are in a month and how many months there are that you're teaching. And it's not really that because there's testing and there's know field trips and there's all of these kids get sick and so it really is you try to budget for like three weeks out of the month is more realistic and at the beginning you kind of have to say yes to everything because you don't know when there's going to be a period where you're not getting asked to do things or you're going to get less work Um, so there might be jobs that you wouldn't necessarily want to to dig into but you have to because you need to store a little bit of money away for those moments where you're not working as much. You know, fortunately you come out of college too. You're not like living large for most people, (laughs) you know, you're eating on a very small budget and you're used to living with roommates. And and that continued for me once I got out of college, you know, there was a period I was living in a house with like five or six of us. And it was like $500 a month. And it was a really pretty decent sized house and I had space for my equipment and I wasn't in an apartment. Um, and there are still challenges with living with, you know, five roommates, like tacos being found in the bathroom. Like, why is there a taco pill taco in the bathroom?
0: Bathing habit, like, all like the habits. <laughs> yeah.
1: And also, like, there was kind of a running joke in the house of like, how long is it gonna be there before it gets thrown out?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And Pete, it was two weeks. Two weeks that taco lived on the counter in the bathroom. Oh God. And the really scary thing of all of it is that it you you would unravel and kind of peek in. It looked exactly like it had come out of the bag. It was <laughs> that was like really scary about it. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Is this food? Is this is this what I'm eating? Yeah. So there's all of the things that come with that, of course. But when you're you're young and like your early 20s or mid 20s, it's like you can hang with that kind of stuff. You can deal with the, the challenges of living that way um, because the rewards are like, oh, I get to teach music. <laughs> I get to play music. I get to write music. People are paying me money to write music. Like this is pretty sweet. You know, I have other friends that are going into their like corporate type gigs and you know, after a few years of doing it, you can see like their interpretation of what a job is is different than mine is, right? Like it is a place that I go and I spend time during the day and I do my work when I'm there, but I'm not enjoying the process at all. Uh, I, the people I'm working with are a headache and I can't wait for the weekend or to party in, in the in the evenings and at night. And that's kind of what they live for. And it's like, oh, my gig, even though I'm not making half what you're making, is so much better because I am so much happier. (laughs) My lifestyle is so much better. So yeah, there is a a financial uh, like challenge there. But like with anything, if you stick with it for a while, um, you start to gain experience, you start to know the right people and make connections and can say yes to the gigs that you wanna do and turn down the ones that aren't as financially uh, lucrative or that just don't work for you um and it's possible to get to a place being self-employed and being in control of of what you take in uh to where everything's great right like my my goal ultimately was even younger it was not necessarily to like have all the money and have all the nice things i just wanted to be able to support myself and live comfortably and that uh i'm i'm there now and it's awesome it's great it works for me that's not true for everyone like People have, you know, their their own needs and their own uh, goals, and that's fine too. Um, but just just to know, like, that it is possible to do, there's going to be a struggle, but it is possible, is is kind of reassuring, I think.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great to hear. I have to mention before I forget that I love your braids.
1: Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I have super thick, really curly hair. Mm. for a long time it's been kind of short like in a bob and then like covid hit and quarantine hit and i just hadn't gotten a, ha- a haircut like yeah. i had already gone too long and I was like well i'll just let it grow and i kind of like it long but this is a way of taming it if i feel like i don't want to spend like half an hour messing with it to only yeah. end with this like big frizzy mess the braids are the thing so
0: wow How long does it take to, I mean, because those things look like locked in. Oh, like two
1: two minutes. It takes no time. Really? Yeah, so fast. And this is simple. Like I do like a a Dutch braid thing Mm -hmm. with with pigtails that that takes about 10 minutes. But yeah, this is like, I can do it in my sleep. My fingers just know how to do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All that four mallet work. You just got the dexterity.
1: It finally has come in handy. Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's, that's great. I just can't play Bach, tra- Bach transcriptions with this. I can do other things.
1: <laughs> yes, definitely.
0: <laughs> and we'll have part two ready for you next week. Stay tuned. This week's rave and keeping it in the MU Bands is a concert performed on October 4th by the University of Missouri Wind Ensemble and under the direction of Missouri's director of bands, Dr. Brian Sylvie. Dr. Sylvie, while also being a good friend, is an excellent wind band conductor, pedagogue, and researcher. He's also getting pretty good at the disc golf game as well. He told me prior to the concert that this was one that he was really quite fond of, and he had a right to feel that way. This was the first wind ensemble concert performed live at our Missouri theater since February of 2020. And it was great to be back live hearing the top wind band at Mizzou. The concert opened with a subdued arrangement of the star spangled banner arranged by Luigi Zaninelli and followed by Carolyn Bremmer's early light, a work that takes musical cues from the banner to provide a take on, of all things, baseball. That was fun. It followed with a performance of Darius Mio's band classic, Suite Frances," which, after all these years, still seems to retain some of its charm and modernistic sound. The group then followed with a performance of Eric Whitaker's October, which heralded the first public live conducting performance by our newest band faculty member, assistant, director of bands Dr. Christian Noon, and that went very well. Then came the close to the program, and that really set it apart. Prior to this performance, Dr. Sylvie provided some background on the final two selections, played without pause, and speaking to the political and cultural significance of them. Similar to the opening, the ensemble played Devin Moore's arrangement of Lift Every Voice and Sing commonly referred to as the Black National Anthem. This was followed immediately by Of Our New Day Begun, the 2015 work by Omar Thomas, written in the wake of the AME Manual church shootings in Charleston, South Carolina from that summer. I can attest that I have not been as up on who is writing the best work for wind band these days. But it sure seems like Omar Thomas is at the top of the list, and one of the best composers writing in the classical style today. His work, including this piece and the extraordinary Shout, do as good of a job as anything I've heard of melding together band composition with African American style and culture, and pushing the wind band art form forward. Of Our Noob Day Begun heavily references Lift Every Voice and Sing, included as both a solemn solo along with the entire band singing it at one point. It is a work full of shock, contemplation, and uplift, and was performed well and with great spirit from the group. It concluded an excellent concert and was a reminder of what's great about experiencing live music with a crowd. I hope you're all able to experience great live music as we move forward throughout the rest of the year. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes to every episode at the homepage at Pete slash Pete's Percussion Podcast The Episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast, you can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next week for part two with Patricia East until then.